This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of important emerging ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the Think Again podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. Today, I'm very, very excited to be speaking with Anne Rice. She's the author of over 30 novels. Her first interview with the vampire was published in 1976 and has gone on to become one of the best-selling novels of all time. Her latest book, Prince Lestat and the Realms of Atlantis, continues the story of the vampire Lestat, started all the way back then in Interview with the Vampire, while also reaching back millennia to a mysterious vanished empire, the lost realms of Atlantis, a past that is inextricably linked to the fate of Lestat and the vampire kingdom he rules. Welcome to Think Again, Anne. Oh, I'm glad to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you here. Um, so, I, first of all, I'm sure you get asked about vampires constantly, and that's sort of par for the course. So we're going to try to ask you about some other things besides vampires, but let's begin with vampires anyway so that we can tell people about the book. Um, vampires Then and Now. So your first book was in 1976, and since then there's been a total vampire explosion. The Twilight books recently, when I was a kid, I'm going asynchronously, there was the goth music and fashion in the 80s, which I was definitely a victim of, <laughs> you know, and sure. even people believing, even people believing they, they are vampires uh, back around, I guess, then and in the early 90s. Why do you think, what's your perspective on why people love the vampires so much? What, what is it about the vampires? Well, I think the, con the concept of the vampire is incredibly powerful. The vampire is a metaphor for the outsider and the outcast, and really for the outcast and the outsider in each of us. I think everybody at some time or another, maybe in adolescence, maybe throughout their lives, feels like an outcast and an outsider, and even a predator. And the vampire is just the perfect metaphor for that. Uh, and, and unpacking that, obviously, uh, you know, a whole slew of authors have been able to create differing uh, movies and, and TV series and novels. Right. Taking that in different directions. I'm not at all surprised, really, that there's been so much richness and that vampires are so much in the mainstream today. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, as you say, outsider, but also super cool and super powerful. You know, I guess it makes sense. Oh, yeah. You know, it makes sense that they're rock star, like that Lestat is a rock star, yes, in one of the early books? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, yes, that, very much so. That makes mm -hmm. sense, yeah. 
Well, well, yeah, I, I think from the beginning, I saw them as powerful creatures with a lot of glamour. They're preternaturally gifted. They're immortal. They don't age. They're stronger than us. They, they're dependent on human blood, but they fall in love. They have hearts. I mean, to me, that was fabulously rich. And I guess that's what I long to be myself. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I was able to create a hero in Lestat that is moving through the world and looking at the world and, and rebelling against being called um, an abomination. And that's how many of us feel about being human beings. That's how women feel about being women. That's how gay people feel about being gay. You know, it, it, it's just all, many, many people identify with the dilemma of the vampire and the desire to be glamorous and powerful at the same time. You know, to see, to see, to see ourselves triumph as the outcast. It's really interesting. You know what I'm thinking of while you're talking? Um, my wife is Turkish, and I've studied Turkish culture a lot. And there's this concept, and like I noticed very early on that Turkish popular music is extremely melancholy compared to most of American popular music. And there's this concept in Turkish culture called huzun, which is basically something like melancholy, loosely translated. It's interesting that vampires have found such a foothold here when much of our popular culture is so sort of sunny and Pollyanna-ish. Well, I, I think the reason for that's obvious. We're all going to die. <laughs> and uh, that that hits you at some point. You know, you might be 12 years old when that first hits you. You might be 20. Right. Um, it hits you. You back off from it. Then it hits you again. And then it comes home to stay at some point, And you're aware of it. And that's the melancholy right there. That's the tragedy that we are sentient beings who feel like we're immortal and we're not immortal at all. And as soon as you start losing people in this world, you're really faced with that. And the vampire deals with all of that. You know, totally. we, we, we want to be immortal. I guess what I'm saying, though, is that like that also seems sort of like un-American in a way. Like American culture seems so obsessed with kind of avoiding those things. So maybe, you know, why do you think it is we can accept it in vampire form, but, <laughs> but we're sort of compartmentalizing it the rest of the time? Well, vampires really are very romantic creatures, and we've been in sort of the romantic movement uh, for 200 years. It started in England with poets like Byron and Shelley, and these vampires are very romantic. My, my vampires are very romantic in that tradition. I recently read in a book um, where a man said that the novel today is still uh, the perfect flowering of the romantic age. The poetry may have died away, but the, the novel is still the individual looking at life and making up a whole story about life and believing enough in your own soul to put that story out there. Well, I would add to that that rock stars are part of the romantic movement, and they're really great metaphors of the romantic sensibility. Individuals that make it by being eccentric and, and rebellious and crazy. Sure and um, have thousands of people clamoring to hear what they're going to say next and sing next. Right, that makes sense. Maybe it starts with Hamlet going back to... Uh, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. I want So I want to ask you, like, you know, you're still inhabiting this world, or you, you, there was a break, and then you sort of revisited it. How has Lestat changed over time, and how has kind of your relationship to that world that you do spend so much time in changed? Well, my vampires were always a reflection of whatever was going on in my life spiritually. Okay. And I went through a crisis at uh, the beginning of the century. Uh, I lost my husband in 2002. I left New Orleans. Uh, that was a big break in my life. I had been married for 41 years. And I put 
aside the vampires for a little while. I associated them with the past, with loss and pain and depression. And things changed for me in the next eight years. So I did a lot of roaming and a lot of experimenting mentally and a lot of uh, looking at life from different points of view. And the vampires came back to me or I went back to them. Lestat came back. I had new ideas for him. I had new stories to tell, new questions. He's always with me. I mean, there's no other character that I've ever written about that's with me the way Lestat is. He's just always there. And I mean, I walk into a hotel and I think, how would he like this? Would he, what would he think of that? Wow, he would love this marble floor. He would really like this enormous exploding bouquet of flowers, you know. Or I come on a rock star uh, late and, and discover, you know, the great Freddie Mercury, for example, <laughs> and his pr- terrific music that people have been telling me about for years. And, and I finally get to it and I think, oh, God, he's a vampire. Absolutely. Totally. You know, <laughs> the stop would love this guy. Th- this is it. And uh, that's the way I am with this character. And I, though I've written 34 books, I just don't get that kind of intensity with any other character I write about. So he's grown with you. He He's connected yeah. with you, and he's just grown over time with you. Yeah, yeah, right. And and when I wrote Prince Lestat, the book that sort of took me back to the vampires after 10 years of being away from them, it's really about him in the Internet age. He wakes up back in the vampire Lestat in the 80s, and he goes into a record store and discovers he can listen to Bach or Beethoven, you know, through an earpiece. And he he thinks, my God, how incredible, you know, recorded music and carrying it with you. Well, it's always been there. But in this new book, Prince Lestat, he's really contending with that. How how do ghosts and vampires and spirits, how are they living in an age where you have to pass through an x-ray machine to get on a plane, and you have to have a picture ID to go almost any place in Europe or America, any place in the West, any place in the East, really? That was the impetus for writing that new novel. It was the idea of a young vampire, Benji Mahmood, starting an internet radio station and calling out to all the members of the undead to get together to unite, and to the elders of the tribe to please come forward and talk to the younger ones and give them some guidance. That that actually brings me to my next question, which is sort of like, you know, a vampire's guide to surviving 2016. It's been a, it's been a rough year for a lot of us in, in the arts and culture. You know, we've lost David Bowie, we just lost Leonard Cohen, and I won't even begin to go into the political situation. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, mm-hmm. what do you think, I don't know, what, what, would, what would Lestat say? You know, did, would he take the, the long view, uh, all of this shall pass, or? Yeah, I definitely think you take the long view, and it will pass. But I'll tell you, the arts usually heat up and get very exciting when we have conservative governments. I mean, if you look back on the Eisenhower years, the government was very placid and conservative, and we had the beat generation. Look look what happened during the years of the Vietnam War. I was going to San Francisco State during those years. I was there when the demonstrations happened and the campuses exploded. Very, very exciting time to be a writer, to be a poet, to be a painter, to be a filmmaker. So we're going to see that again right now. We're going to see the arts explode because there is a great deal that people have to say, especially in the liberal community and in the community of the arts, and they're going to say it with flaming colors. So I think we're going to see even more of that than we might have seen, much more of that than we might have seen if we had had uh, a different outcome to this election. You know, this is on my mind because I dealt with it in this book when I created my version of Atlantis. It's a utopia, the way I think things should be, ideally. Well, people have all those dreams right now. They're asking a lot of the culture. We're We're not satisfied to just let people go hungry. 
And we're not satisfied, really, to let them go hungry anywhere in the world if we can do something about it. So all that pressure, all that heat, all that passion is going to go someplace, and it's going to go in the arts. It's going to be great. Yeah. I That's how I see it. I certainly <laughs> hope so. I certainly hope so. I mean, it seems, well, I feel like there's a great tension between dark and light in terms of those utopian dreams that you're talking about and some portion of the human population that isn't necessarily so excited about them, you know? So, I mean, well, I think there may yeah. be a battle coming, a cultural battle. There might be, but I think in the world we live in as novelists and, and writers and filmmakers, it's going to be terrifically <laughs> exciting. The, gov the government cannot suppress the arts. That's it right. It can't, and it won't, and it never really has in America. And there might be some way in which the arts are affected in a negative way, maybe an absence of grants, government grants for the more avant-garde people. I don't know. That's yet to be determined. I'm not quite sure how the National Endowment for the Arts works or is impacted directly. But that doesn't stop all the filmmakers in Hollywood from, from you know, that, that won't stop the great minds of our time That's right. from doing innovative and creative things. And I think we're going to... We're going to go on. Look at the golden age of television, what's going on right now. It's incredible. We're seeing things on television that nobody ever dreamed would be on television. We've been seeing that for 10 years. It just one barrier after another is broken, and, and we'll continue to see that. Well, I look forward to it. And I think that's a good place for us to transition into the second part of the show, where we'll watch, um, we'll watch three surprise clips. And... This is developmental psychologist Allison Gopnik. The video is called Spooky Science, Why Do People Claim to See Ghosts? There's a fascinating, uh, fascinating line of research recently trying to explain why people see ghosts. And it's a phenomenon that people have talked about for a long time that someone will suddenly feel as if there's this presence of another person that's nearby. And it turns out that you can actually artificially induce that sense of another presence that's, that's nearby. Um, and you can do it by using the sense that we have of our own presence. So as I'm sitting here now, I have a fairly strong sense that I am sitting here now, that there's this person who's me who's sitting here. So what they did in this experiment was to set up a situation where when I'm, say, touching, moving a stick, I feel a stick behind me touching my back. So even though I couldn't actually be bringing about that movement, it's highly correlated with my own movements, the way that my hand waving is correlated with my intending to wave my hand. So here it is, I'm intending to, I'm intentionally moving the stick and I'm feeling the stick moving in exactly the same way on my back. It turns out that when you do that, people report even though they know it's not true, they report that there's this other person that's somewhere out there, there's a presence. And when you look at people who report this feeling of presence, it's a characteristic of certain kinds of brain damage which affect this kind of kinesthetic sense we have of our own bodies. So the sense that I have that I'm here inside of me, not over there, that's generated by particular brain areas, and with damage to those brain areas, if that system gets sort of messed up, one of the results is that you think that there's another person there. Well, it was an interesting little clip, and it seems a strained attempt to explain away ghosts that doesn't work. But, I mean, how, how does what was said in that clip possibly explain the fact that people see people who aren't there? I mean, say, for example, I mean, it's been reported in the records of the English, uh, you know, psychic society that keeps 
records of many, many people have seen ghosts. Say you have a woman, for example, and she's in India, and she's sitting on her patio, and her brother comes walking up, and her brother's supposed to be back fighting in the First World War. And she says, what are you doing here, George? And he sits down and talks with her and tells her everything is going to be okay. Then he disappears. Okay. And she finds out the next day that he has died in Belgium, or he's died um, somewhere in France. How does that clip possibly explain what just happened? That unprovoked and without any anticipation, she happened to see somebody who wasn't there. I'm not saying she saw a ghost. I'm just right. saying that that particular clip doesn't explain it. It doesn't necessarily explain it, but it does point in the di possible direction that our mind has the ability, you know, that the way that our mind makes sense of reality, both physically in terms of where we are in space, but also visually, like many of those things are an illusion in the brain. We take an information and then our brain makes sense of it somehow. Um, and so it suggests that it could be a situation where those, that person you described, m their brain is misinterpreting or reinterpreting visual information in, you know, as a ghost. I don't, I don't see it as an adequate explanation. I mean, we have, I don't, I've never seen right. a ghost and <laughs> I can't, I. I don't claim to have ever seen a ghost and I've met many people who claim to have seen ghosts and have told me all about it. I've never seen a ghost, never had any feeling that anything supernatural was right. near me or in any way trying to, to communicate with me. So understand, I don't have a, a big <laughs> right. case to make here, but I have read the data and there's a lot of data dating back thousands of years and that kind of explanation simply doesn't touch on all the different phenomena right. there are. This is often the case with psychic phenomena. If you read the actual records, if you read the accounts, if you read the testimony, these things are very hard to explain away totally. There are just too many kinds of experiences that happen in too many kinds of situations. And my mind's still sure. open. I don't know whether it's coming from within or it's coming from without. That was a very interesting uh, clip, and it raised some very interesting uh, questions about the mind. But it doesn't come close to explaining away the information we have on ghosts. So can I tell you a little story? Sure. I am pretty skeptical about these things. I come from like medical people and science people for the most part. So generally I don't tend to believe in ghosts or UFOs or whatever simply because we, you know, we have only pretty much anecdotal evidence for mm -hmm. them. However, when I was a kid, my mom taught my sister and me to use a Ouija board. In fact, like she just taught us to take Scrabble letters and make a circle and then put a glass down and then work mm -hmm. it together. Sure. And we had some really weird experiences. My sister was three and a half years younger than me and too young to have gamed the system in any way. And I certainly wasn't gaming the system consciously. And, the, and you know, we had quote unquote spirits telling us that they were from countries we'd never visited, that they had died in World War One. You know, very, very surprising things that I, to this day, cannot simply dismiss as like, oh, my mind somehow unconsciously mm -hmm. projected that, you know? Mm -hmm. Sure, sure, I understand. Uh, I, I think that what you're talking about is a common experience. There is a, a great deal of material on the spirits that manifest through Ouija boards and other systems like Ouija boards, and people have uh, theorize that there are in fact discarnate entities out there and that with a Ouija board you can open a channel to those entities and they can come through and start talking to you. And many people have concluded that those spirits are capricious, 
uh, irresponsible and that they often tell lies. And that <laughs> they can pretend to be an ancestor or they can pretend to be an angel or a spirit guide when in fact they, all we know about them is that they are discarnate and they seem to have intelligence and they want to communicate. And I find that fascinating. I've been reading books on that sort of thing for years and I've got no explanation for it. <laughs> what I've, I tell you what I have is respect and an open mind. I'd right. like to know more. I really would. I, I yeah. will say that my direct experience with it freaked both me and my sister out enough at some point that we were just like, that'll be quite enough of that, you know? Um, I understand that. Yeah, I, wouldn't, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't mess with it myself, to be <laughs> frank with you. I, I don't want to invite a discarnate entity into my environment, you know? <laughs> right. I, I, you know, that this leads me to something that I found really interesting in your book that maybe we could talk about a little bit before we get to the next clip, which is the way that Amel, if I'm remembering that name correctly, mm -hmm. dwells mm -hmm. inside Lestat. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. He's an ancient spirit, and Lestat has consumed the his brain, or no, the brain, it's, it's been a, a, a little bit since I read it. He, yeah. He, yeah, he consumed the brain of Macari, this right, beautiful right. red-haired vampire, and she was the right. present host. She had taken the brain of Akasha, the original host, and, and she had a male inside of her. Well, a male for thousands of years has been silent, uh, unable to communicate, apparently just um, the slave of all of the vampires uh, living in the blood that are connected to him. Right. And he comes of age, kind of, at the point when he's in McCary, he begins to be able to talk. Um, he can only do this telepathically through the other vampires, but he's trapped in a host that can't talk, and a host that's pretty much a wreck psychologically. McCary is thousands of years old, and she's deteriorated in isolation, and, and she really offers nothing but a sort of a tomb to Amel, and he longs to get out of that tomb, and he wants to be in Lestat, and he accomplishes his purpose. And yeah. Lestat consumes the brain where the physical entity is lodging, and then an Amel is in Lestat, and suddenly Lestat is the core of all the vampire tribe. If you hurt him, you're going to hurt all the vampires. If you were to kill him, you would kill all the vampires because they're all connected, like blossoms on a vine. That was one of the things I found most interesting in your book is sort of the way that Amel dwelt inside Lestat and the, his relationship to Lestat and then the way he would sort of leave for a while and go do other things but come back. I, I thought that was a very interesting form of consciousness and identity. Mm. Well, they fall in love. They really love each other. And this book, this entire book, is about that love affair between Amel and Lestat. You right. know, Amel starts talking to him, and, and of course there are vampires who are plotting to try to take this entity, Amel, and put him in some sort of tank of blood and sustain him as the core where he can't cause any trouble and can't do any harm to anybody. And that would be horrible for him. I mean, he's a conscious being. And right. it would be absolutely ghastly. And Lestat's against that. He's sort of the protector of this being. He's saying, look, this, this creature has feelings too. This is an individual, and we're not going to allow that to happen. And, and they love each other. And Amel isn't aware of everything about himself. He suffered the trauma of having died and become a spirit and deteriorated somewhat as a spirit before he became the, the host of all the vampires. And... So that's kind of what the novel is about, and, and I guess it's me exploring over and over again the theme about everything that's conscious and everything that has the capacity to suffer has to be respected. Right, right. I mean, I think you make that point 
especially beautifully because this relationship and this love and the nature of Amel is so sort of different from an alien to anything that we know that it really it really does it you know it really cements that point of mm -hmm. the need to respect every every consciousness mm -hmm. i mean lestat faces the fact that he can't make his own life any more important than Amel's life you know that this thing inside right. him has a right to exist and if that means that lestat's going to be destroyed well that's what's going to happen and he says over and over again that that might be inevitably what will happen. He has to face that. Yeah, it's very strange and very beautiful. Thank I you. I think, yeah, shall, shall, we, shall we go to the next clip and see, see what sure. they've got for us? Okay, so this one is Kathleen McAuliffe, and let me see what the title is. Vampire origin story from real disease to Halloween legend. One um, parasitic manipulation, perhaps the oldest one known on the books, is uh, what the rabies virus uh, does. And as everyone knows, that once uh, you, uh, you know, a rabbit animal bites you, the virus can then travel to the brain. And what it does is it invades the hypothalamus, which is the center of the brain that controls all our most fundamental drives, for example, you know, anger and aggression, hunger, and your sex drive. And it's um, not commonly known, but a atypical symptom of rabies is hypersexuality. And uh, there are a number of scientists who think that the vampire legend is based on rabies, that it's, it's rabies that was the inspiration for it. Because as we know, for example, vampires are hypersexual. So, is there a place you'd want to well, start sure. with this? Well, sure. I mean, that, that yeah. clip makes a lot of sense. I, I think different diseases, not just rabies, but other diseases as well, may have given uh, rise to the legends of vampires. But... Uh, I can't say that it would be rabies more than, say, some other disease. Obviously, the legend's rooted in people's fear of the dead rising and coming back and preying on the living. It might just as well be a psychological explanation. People feel tremendous guilt when somebody dies, and that guilt uh, drains them of energy, and they don't feel that they can live, and they're even perhaps imagining they're being haunted by that person and drained. I don't know. I do know that vampire legends go all the way back in history. All the way back, you find the vampire in just about every mythology. There's some form of blood-sucking creature, a lamia or something. And what's more interesting to me, though, is the tie-in to blood, that these creatures drink blood, that that's the thing they do when they come back. And the way we treat blood is, is something sacred in ancient times. And I love, for example, reading the role that blood plays in the Hebrew Bible. God says the blood is the life, and you have to pour out the blood from the animal before you can eat it. The blood belongs to the Lord. All of that ties in with people's very, very strong feelings about life and death and the mystery of life and death. But I thought that was very interesting, very illuminating. I could see that. That could give rise to a vampire panic in a village if you had an outbreak of hydrophobia. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sure. I, had, I remember hearing also that some historians speculating that the old witch myths, uh, and especially the outbreaks in Salem, Massachusetts, and, and like that, were possibly the result of people eating 
mold, mm -hmm. moldy bread. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've heard these yeah. sorts of things. I, I, I think it's interesting how, like, both in biblical times, I mean, really, if you just go back a couple hundred years to where our kind of scientific understanding was much more rudimentary or even further back to where it's almost non-existent, how we exist in this kind of free-form imaginative state with respect to like like our psychology projecting on the world you know taking in facts from outside us and spinning them into mythology that somehow takes what's in our mind and projects it onto the mm. world oh no question yeah i think we're finding more and more biological explanations for things that happened in the past that we can't explain we we go back and we do sort of a post-mortem on history and we figure that these different diseases might have been involved, different cravings. And that yeah, yeah. thing you mentioned with the bread, that people would eat this mold and they would hallucinate. And, and they obviously believed that what they were seeing was real. And they, there would be a mass panic in a village and it might have all come from bad bread. Right, um, right. Yeah. I mean, uh, we find out more interesting things like that all the time. It's, it's astonishing. And of course, when you study things like the witchcraft panics in Europe and, and what happened, other elements become involved, political elements. Sure, uh, sure. You know, the, the, the witchcraft persecutions in Europe actually didn't happen in the Middle Ages, as many people assume. They happened really during the Reformation and the Renaissance. And that was a time when people were uh, in Italy, in the Italian Renaissance, they were breaking free of the church and going for a new vital kind of humanism and shocking um, eroticism in paintings by people like Michelangelo and um, other Renaissance artists. Right. And at the same time, you had the Reformation in Northern Europe trying to um, really take a very strict uh what I would call superstitious approach to religion. And that's where the witchcraft stuff started. It started with the belief that the devil was rising in power in Europe, that things were out of hand gotcha. and that you had to go to villages and you had to find people who had actually sold their souls to the devil. So, so there's a lot more politics than disease involved, you know, politics and current events. Right. And uh, yeah, and I guess politics is power. I mean, I'm also seeing, you know, I mean, Clearly, there's a gender component mm -hmm. there too, like a fear a fear of women's mm -hmm. potentially liberated sexuality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's true. There, it, people have done studies that show there was a gender imbalance at that time. That women tended to live longer than men, and you had villages with large populations of very elderly women, and that they fell victim to the witchcraft superstition very quickly. Um, it was bad. Also, uh, you know, these were the years after the Black Plague, and um, I, I don't know. There are lots of physical studies about why these movements rise because of very basic physical and biological realities. And, and yet, I must confess, and I imagine you would feel similarly, that, like, I'm in a sense, I'm, I'm very interested in those biological origins, but I'm, I'm even more interested or more in love with the stories themselves that emerge mm -hmm. from these, you know, in mm -hmm. these strange ways, like how these myths yeah. arose. And yeah. Well, it, it's kind of one thing that interests me very much about the witchcraft persecutions is it was sort of a pseudo-scientific thing. You'd have a witch, a witch finder right. who would travel around and he would have a needle with which he'd prick witches and could tell if they were witches. It was right. very pseudo-scientific. It was like a dark reflection of the actual breakthroughs in science that were going on 
in Renaissance Italy and in other places. I mean, it was a humanist age, an age when lots of information from the ancient world by Plato and Aristotle and others was was being translated for the first time and printed because we had the printing press. So then you get this dark, superstitious pseudoscience at the same time that goes around trying to put the lid on everything. Very scary time to be alive and to be weird. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And I mean, and the thing is, our understanding of science is always partial. Right. So in retro, I mean, although we may be in a slightly less pseudo-scientific age, I don't know what, you know, looking back from the vantage point of 200 years from now, many of the things that we're doing now may look completely oh, yeah. fictional oh, yeah. and yeah. crazy. Yeah. yeah, we have panics. We have panics yeah. in this country. Psychological ideas take hold and, and they become popular and then they die down. And, and we're, you're right. Most of us can't understand most of the science we read. You know, we, we read the Science right. Times every week in the New York Times, but I mean, can barely understand some of the articles. And, and we take a little bit of that away, and, and there's always a sort of pseudoscience existing out there, and it gets mixed up with ancient aliens and um, popular ideas about things. And it's interesting how the poetry of science gets into popular art and, and music and film and fiction. Um, I like to play with it myself. I mean, my vampires have always occupied space, and they've always been subject to biological laws. They don't disappear, and they do reflect in mirrors. But they have preternatural gifts, not supernatural, but preternatural. They can't dissolve into powder and go through uh, a keyhole. But they can certainly over overwhelm a human, and they can drink all his blood, and all that blood will go into making their preternatural body stronger and even more beautiful than before. So I like to play around with it, too. I, I enjoy a supernatural fiction that has a strong biological undercurrent to it. I think I think on that note, let's let's move on to the third and final of our short clips, and uh, which okay. takes us into a totally different area. So this is Wesley Lowry, uh, is the expert here, and it is asking whether Facebook is responsible for fake news on its platform. And I know you're a big Facebook user, and so this will be an interesting direction for us to go. I think Facebook is responsible for what exists and what happens on its platform. And I think that Facebook has been negligent in its responsibility to safeguarding and providing a, a forum in which sane and reasonable interaction happens and that hysterical and untrue interaction does not happen. What we know is that Facebook has the ability to deal with, with fake news. These are fake sites that they pop up. They're being spread by specific pages and specific accounts. And rather than address that, Facebook has allowed millions of people to become deeply ill-informed. Now, there's a question, how, sh how democratic should, should a platform like Facebook be? If everyone wants to share a fake news article, should that be allowed? Or does Facebook have some editorial control of what it allows to be propagated via its own, its own mechanisms and its own channels? I mean, I think that Facebook needs to take greater steps in these spaces because Facebook itself has become a media publisher and it is now the platform and the canvas for chaos to be created by all of this fake information spreading so quickly without any check and balance and any responsibility being taken by the platform of sorting through what is true and what is not. Yeah, I, 
I think what we're what we're realizing is that all of these different internet entities, Facebook, Twitter, and the like, are going to have to develop regulations, and they're going to have to put some money into warm bodies to implement those regulations. They're going to have to do this. They're lagging behind. I mean, in the name of free speech, um, they have let too much happen. And this this election we went through was the first real internet election where the, the, the no-holes-barred, say-anything-you-want type of mentality that was rampant on the net was rampant in the election. And the news media itself could not possibly do the fact-checking fast enough. And as one cynical um, surrogate said at the time, news for you, nobody cares about fact-checking. And I remember thinking, what an astonishingly cynical comment to make. Uh, this was by a woman who'd made some atrociously inaccurate comment, and she was caught in it, and that was her response. And, but we are facing a crisis with this. We can't go on having people inundated with all this fake news and, and nobody doing anything about it. Newspapers do have standards. Every institution in our society has standards and rules, and they're not perceived as violations of free speech. And so Twitter and Facebook and all the others, they're going to have to come up with some regulations too, and it's going to be a real problem. There's no question. Anybody who's been through a Facebook discussion of politics in this last election knows that it's very hard where to say Fake news starts and just pure hate and venom uh, are on the other side. I mean, you read story. I, I was taking down stories all the time, links to stories about Hillary Clinton. They were just patently false. They were just conspiratorial nonsense. But, but what do you do when you come up with a story that's just a, an expression of opinion and is positively venomous? But the person says, this is my right to have this opinion ever, and this is what I believe. You, you know, what are you supposed to do? Leave that up when, when actually you can't see any substance to that whatsoever or anything to really back it up. And it's a, it's a crisis. And I think that was always like true of politics, you know, and, and religion. And these are reasons why people are careful about discussing mm -hmm. them at Thanksgiving and such. But but I, I think it gets exacerbated and fueled by the Internet. And we have, you know, apparently there, there are these Macedonian like teenagers that were just manufacturing fake pro-Trump news for the hell of it in order to get clicks. And then you have Trump himself who goes onto Twitter and says things like millions of voters voted fraudulently, which we all know to be patently untrue, but, but, but there it is. You know? And so that, that certainly normalizes fake news to a certain extent when the you know, future commander in chief is a, a proponent of it. That's right. And we are challenged in a way we've never been before. And I'm, I'm confident that we will get through this. We will develop standards. We will put some money into figuring out how to handle the complaints. And we will get fake news stories taken down. And we will get obscenity and, and hate taken down. And it, it's just going to take a lot of work. Each decision is important. And we do value freedom of speech. And we will get there. We will get there. I would like to believe so. I, I think it's going to mean counteracting a lot of what is very deliberately being done right now, um, you know, by Trump and others to problematize reality and to say that, you know, to try to create the impression that, for example, fact checking or objections to what we might call fake news are, in fact, you know, liberal bias or spin or, you know, they, like mm -hmm. there's this. Double speak mm -hmm. going on right now that's trying to confuse everybody's 
yes, compass yes. with respect to this stuff. Yeah, there are a good many people making very crude distinctions, right. just saying out of hand, I will not read the New York Times, it's liberally biased. Right. Well, uh, the New York Times, that, that's a completely unfair statement. I mean, it's, it's unfair to, to label the entire mainstream media as being in the pocket of the liberal establishment. That, that is not true. I mean, there is quality reporting going on at the Washington Post and the New York Times, and there are people checking facts and trying to write stories that, that are objective. And of course, there is an editorial point of view, and that can be defined and studied and supported. But there are also efforts to show the other points of view. And, and we have to just keep working at it. It's going to be exhausting. It's going, I mean, there are yes. times when you're so frustrated by what's going on. You know, I, I participate um, in the Amazon discussion forums. You've probably never heard of them, nope. but they exist on Amazon, and they, they started as customer discussions where you could go to discuss products that you were buying. But there are actual discussions that go on of religion and politics and Christianity and oh, so forth as well. And any Amazon customer can participate. And for years, I have participated in the Christianity forums. And I have seen the kind of arguing and wrangling and conflict that goes on in those forums. There are people who want you banned in the Christianity forum simply because you are saying critical things about religion. And then there are others who are there just to discuss critical views of religion. And there are others there who are actually preaching religion. And I've seen all these different pressures, and right. I've seen how they build, right. and I've seen how people just go after others and say, well, I'm going to have you removed. I'm going to have you banned because you're saying disgraceful things about religion. How dare you? And, and we, you know, those of us who do that, we point out that that's what we're there for. You know, that's what it's about. And, of course, that's not new either. Like, I mean, you know, no. centuries ago, people were burning people at the stake for saying yes. something slightly different about Jesus or whatever, you know. Well, well that, that's it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. we've, only had, we've only had this freedom to talk about religion for about 200 years. <laughs> right, really. right. And, and it's still new, and there are still people who would love to do away with this freedom. And, and it's been a fabulous experience being in those Amazon discussion forums because I've encountered so many arch conservatives um, who are interesting and intelligent and others that I think are really superstitious and fanatical. But they have all taught me a lot. And I've learned a lot about trying to express myself in my arguments to make nuanced posts that offer my views in a way I hope that I can be heard. It's, it's been quite an education. But all during the election, I saw things I could relate to the election, really. So you've made a real, you've made a concerted effort to stay in the conversation with the people mm -hmm. who you can mm -hmm. stay in there with and like really oh, yeah. hear both sides. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Oh yeah, and I've made good friends. I have right. I have good friends I've made in the forum and we're email buddies now and, and we exchange ideas and and uh, some of them are evangelical Christians that are completely polar opposite from me and my views, right. my free-thinking views. And uh, But it's been quite an experience, but it, it's a microcosm through which I've learned a lot. The larger forum is Facebook, and I've seen it there too, the very same battles and squabbles. Right, and, and I think a lot of us are feeling right now that now is a time when we're all going, you know, in America, um, well-meaning people, if that's actually a meaningful you know, phrase, um, are going to have to try to figure out how to talk to each other again from across exactly. all sorts of distinctions. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We, we, I'm convinced that nothing can be done unless we admit the good intentions of our opponents. We right. have to do that. Right. And we have to give them a chance to tell us in an honest way what their views are. And, and if we can't start with that, we can't get anywhere. 
I think that is a perfect place on which to end this wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Anne Rice. It's been great having you on the show. Well, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. It's been very interesting. So that wraps up another episode of Think Again. And um, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I am totally swept up like the rest of the media zeitgeist seems to be in the sort of end of year reflectiveness. It's been a crazy year, 2016. From a cultural standpoint, we lost lots of amazing people, uh, Leonard Cohen, David Bowie. Politically, it was, it was intense for a lot of us as well here in America. I am really looking forward to 2017. There's a lot of great shows coming up, a lot of great guests coming up on Think Again, um, and I've got a bunch of other projects in the works that I'm really excited about. And I hope the same is true for you too. Reach out to me. Uh, write to me at uh, jason at bigthink.com or send me like a, a voice mp3. Let me know how your year has been, what you're looking forward to in the next year. I'd love to gather some of those up and put them on a future episode. And uh, we'll be back next week and hope to have you here too.